Thanks, John. So um, the, the question I was asked was to address how to treat uh, early relapse follicular lymphoma, and I don't have a perfect answer for it, and I decided to approach it rather than giving an exact answer just to review the data behind the topic, and um, I think ultimately we all make decisions based on what seems right at the time. So I learned uh, a lot, almost everything I know about follicular lymphoma from John, and so not surprisingly, I have kind of the same approach. And the first thing I think it's important to realize is that follicular lymphoma is primarily a disease of um, excess morbidity rather than one of early mortality, and this is data from the Mayo Clinic uh, with a validation set from France essentially showing that patients with follicular lymphoma, newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma, that don't have an event within the first 12 months of life, whether that's uh, their selected for uh, observation and then uh, don't progress within 12 months or they're treated immediately and don't progress within 12 months. These people have a survival that's essentially equivalent to the general population without lymphoma at all. That's why, as, as Jonathan Cohen mentioned earlier uh, today, that's why we don't see overall survival benefits in follicular lymphoma trials. You'd have to make somebody live longer than somebody without cancer. Unfortunately, some people with follicular lymphoma uh, do experience excess morbidity or excess mortality. And uh, Carla Casulo has shown this uh, in repeated set or in multiple settings, essentially demonstrating that patients who experience disease progression within the first two years of frontline, uh, frontline treatment with immunochemotherapy have a survival rate that's about 50% at five years, significantly worse than the other uh, the rest of the patients. So it's these patients theoretically where we need to develop not just treatments that are um, better tolerated, but in particular treatments that are more effective. One of the first uh, factors I think we have to address in people that experience early progression is the risk of transformation. It turns out that um, roughly 30 to 50% of patients that experience early transformation, depending on the study we look at, uh, likely are, uh, or experience early progression are likely due to transformation. Uh, transformation seems to occur at a relatively low rate and then plateau after about a, a decade, but many of the transformations will occur uh, early on. Interestingly, we're not great at predicting transformation other than to look at sort of basically available clinical uh, risk factors, but things like gene uh, or mutational profiling may not uh, predict transformation as well as it might predict uh, early progression. It seems like some of the clones that might eventually uh, result in transformation are, are present at such a low level at uh, diagnosis that they're not easy to uh, find. There are more and more data coming out about transformation, and these are a few interesting studies. First of, first of all, uh, top left corner, you see that um, patients who are diagnosed with follicular lymphoma and transformed follicular lymphoma at the same time have a survival uh, that's roughly equivalent, whereas those that develop uh, transformation uh, later on, the green curve, unfortunately don't live as long. On the top right, actually, are people who have known or suspected transformation, those two curves. In other words, when we suspect that transformation is likely, it's, even if we are unable to biopsy it and prove that it's there, in fact, it, it likely is there, and we should treat them as though they're transformed. On the bottom uh, right, we see the survival of patients with transformed follicular lymphoma relative to large cell lymphoma and they're uh, quite similar. And then on the bottom left, you can see that these are essentially the best data we have for uh, the survival of patients who experience transformation later on. This is the, the likelihood of their survival from the time of transformation on the yellow curve. 
So it averages about three to five years. I remember when I was a fellow, we used to always say it was one to two years. It's uh, better than that now. So quick summary, follicular lymphoma is a disease of excess morbidity. Roughly 20% of patients experience early events, and 30 to 50% of these events are early progressors. Uh, of early progressors are likely related to histological transformation. So how do we manage these people? I think a lot of us consider autologous stem cell transplantation as a reasonable option, and there are um, not a ton of data looking at autologous stem cell transplantation in early progressors, but this is data that uh, Carla Casulo put together from a CIBMTR uh, registry looking at patients with early progression specifically who underwent uh, transfer or underwent um, a, a stem cell transplant, and then also look, comparing them to a group of patients who did not undergo stem cell transplantation. And you can see that those who underwent stem cell transplantation stem cell transplantation uh, appeared to do better. Uh, obviously, when we're looking at retrospective uh, data, there are some biases there. In particular, it seemed like those who did better were those that underwent uh, stem cell transplant very near to the time of early progression within the first year. Sony Smith, uh, who was here earlier, I don't know if she's still here. It's always kind of weird to present somebody else's data to them, but sometimes helpful to answer questions. So she looked at same uh, similar data set from the CIBMTR and looked at both at autologous stem cell transplant and patients who underwent uh, allogeneic stem cell transplantation. And you can see on the top uh, right side, there's the risk of relapse. And uh, in particular, what you see is, uh, first of all, relapses start to plateau after about four years. In other words, some people that are early progressors who under, undergo stem cell, autologous stem cell transplantation uh, can have quite durable uh, or uh, relapse-free intervals, but that initial period of time, unfortunately, is uh, relapses are still quite common. Seem to get fewer relapses if we use an allogeneic stem cell transplant, but of course the non-relapse mortality is significantly <laughs> higher, and so overall survival ends up being quite similar. So we don't have a real answer of which of these is the best option. I've always uh, sort of wondered, you know, is it possible that an autologous stem cell transplant could change disease biology in these early relapsers and potentially protect against bad clones? And this is data from um, an Italian study looking at upfront stem cell transplant and first complete response. And essentially, they show that there was a significant benefit to, uh, in terms of progression-free survival, but no difference in overall survival. Presumably, some of those patients in that trial would have been uh, early progressors, and it does not appear as though their survival was better because of the stem cell transplant. Maybe that's because there are limited numbers, but I, maybe the setting, maybe the stem cell transplant only saves lives if it's later in life. I suspect that it's probably true that it doesn't really change disease biology. It's just that when we use it in the second-line setting, it's more effective than uh, less intensive therapy, the same way as it would be in the first-line setting. This is a current intergroup uh, trial led by SWOG, and it uh, looks specifically at patients that are experiencing early disease progression within the first two years of frontline immunochemotherapy. The trial was originally designed to look at patients who had progressed within 24 months after bendamustine and an anti-CD20 uh, antibody. Since then, it's been amended to include uh, CHOP and an anti-CD20 antibody. Those that received bendamustine are randomized to receive either CHOP abinutuzumab, TGR-1202, which is a PI3 kinase inhibitor plus abinutuzumab, or lenalidomide abinutuzumab. Those that received CHOP in the frontline setting, same randomization except it's uh, bendamustine. 
So uh, let's discuss uh, what, what's the rationale behind those treatment arms. So the reason for including abinutuzumab essentially comes from the Gadolin trial. It's not uh, exactly perfectly applicable to this patient population, but essentially as um, Jonathan and Sony uh, mentioned earlier today, abinutuzumab plus bendamustine was shown to be ben- superior to uh, bendamustine alone, both in terms of progression-free survival and overall survival. So there's a suggestion that patients um, who have some inherent resistance to rituximab may do better with uh, obinutuzumab for uh, whatever reason. So there's reason to include that in a trial like this. How about PI3 kinase? So it turns out PI3 kinase is a very good target in follicular lymphoma. We now have three uh, agents, three PI3 kinase inhibitors that are approved for follicular lymphoma. Uh, Idelalisib, which was the first, Copanlisib uh, more recently, uh, and Duvalisib just uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, in the clinical trial, we're using the TG1202, and there are other PI3 kinase inhibitors in development. You can see that they all target the delta isoform of PI3 kinase, and then there are some differences, uh, including alpha uh, in Copanlisib and delta with Duvalisib, or gamma with Duvalisib. There are different delivery mechanisms. So copanlisib is unique in that it's intravenous weekly. You can see that in, so all of these trials were done in patients who had received um, an alkylator and rituximab. All patients um, were essentially uh, relapsed on both of these drugs. The idelalisib trial required that they were both, uh, they were refractory to both of them. Uh, but most patients in, both, in all of these trials were in fact uh, refractory to uh, their last prior therapy. <laughs> You can see that they all have similar response rates and similar uh, complete response rates, and they all have similar uh, progression-free survival. There are some differences in the rates of toxicity. I think um, a word of caveat in interpreting those differences are that some of the uh, toxicities that we've seen with idelalisib were toxicities that became more prevalent the longer follow-up we had, so in particular Colitis and pneumonitis were things that were not immediately apparent in the first phase one or phase two trials, but as we followed patients for longer, as they were on the drugs for longer, we started to see a little bit more. Similarly, sepsis and opportunistic infections uh, only became clear when we started to combine idelalisib with rituximab, bendamustine rituximab, and early, in earlier lines of therapy, like in the frontline or second-line setting. Um, so whether the other PI3 kinase inhibitors would have similar toxicity profiles or not is hard to say. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're more similar than they are different in that sense. Uh, some people think that the alpha inhibition or this uh, CK1E-epsilon inhibition in co- uh, copanlisib and TG1202 might protect from those uh, adverse events or differences in uh, pharmacokinetics, for example, copanlisib being dosed weekly. And with the insight drug, uh, patients are switched after, daily, after nine weeks of therapy from daily therapy to weekly therapy and that could all also theoretically protect from some of these adverse events. The one key uh, I will mention with copanlisib, which was one of the questions here, is that alpha inhibition in copanlisib is associated with uh, hyperglycemia, which peaks at about four hours after the infusion of uh, copanlisib. So if you choose to administer copanlisib in your patient, one key is to make sure that glucose is very well controlled prior to dosing copanlisib. The other key is to not overreact. The glucose will peak at about four hours, and then it will go down we're more likely to cause problems by over-treating hyperglycemia with a lot of insulin, and then the next uh, morning somebody is profoundly hypoglycemic. So control it beforehand, and then it will be okay. 
uh, there are data from Kulpan Lisib, or from Aidella Lisib, rather. Um, so the initial trial included uh, multiple indolent uh, non Hodgkin's lymphomas. Um, there was a publication uh, from Ajay Gopal that looked at the sub, uh, subset with people with uh, follicular lymphoma and then an even uh, more uh, subsetted population who had experienced early progression um, from in that original clinical trial. And you can see the response rates and progression-free survival were essentially the same in all of those uh, subgroups. I think that we're likely also to see that that's probably similar when, when other PI3 kinase inhibitors or other drugs look at that, we're likely to see similar um, effects. But a, a note about looking at these unplanned subset analyses. The patients that were enrolled, for example, in that adelalisib trial um, were not all early progressors, a small subset of them were. They had three prior, ther- of the early progressors, they had a median of three prior therapies. That means that an early progressor had to live long enough to get another two therapies before they ultimately were included in this clinical trial on average. So you can imagine a scenario where somebody experiences early progression with follicular lymphoma, uh, doesn't get many subsequent therapies because they're too sick or, or whatever else is not ultimately eligible for a clinical trial, and maybe doesn't have this kind of response to a PI3 kinase inhibitor. And so if you cut, for example, that curve after the first year, which is uh, on average the time it takes from somebody to have early progression to the time they're included in one of these clinical trials, and you take those patients specifically, you can see that they do a little bit better than you would expect. And so just take a a little bit of a caveat when we interpret those kinds of uh, data. So PI3 kinase inhibitors are among the most active single agents, but I think it um, can be debated how different they all are. I think that they all require different kinds of monitoring, and so patients and providers have to get used to that. The other thing I think is unclear are, are different kinds of combinations uh, may result in different kinds of toxicities. We've seen that with idelalisib and uh, bendamustine or rituximab. We also learned in the alliance that combining idelalisib with lenalidomide was not a good idea. So we'll take a little bit more work to figure out how best to use these agents. Uh, lenalidomide is the other is the third arm of that uh, clinical trial. Uh, this is data that was uh, presented by uh, John Leonard a few years ago. And essentially, in this clinical trial, patients with uh, previously treated follicular lymphoma received uh, lenalidomide or lenalidomide plus rituximab. The addition of rituximab to to lenalidomide clearly improved the response rate and overall response rate, as well as uh, progression-free survival quite significantly. It essentially doubled progression-free survival. Uh, It's clear from looking at the adverse events that the majority of adverse events in this trial were related to uh, lenalidomide, not uh, rituximab, at least grade three, four adverse events. The AUGMENT uh, trial is a very uh, is a similar concept, a little bit reversed. In fact, in this trial, patients with previously treated follicular lymphoma, these were not patients who were double refractory, right? These were patients who um, were eligible to theoretically receive single-agent rituximab, and they were randomized between single-agent rituximab or the combination of lenalidomide plus rituximab. This trial... Um, There was recently a press release suggesting that the trial had met its primary endpoint. Uh, In the press release, they hint at a trend uh, even towards improvement in overall survival, and we're likely to see this data uh, presented in the near future. The MAGNIFY trial is sort of a similar design where everybody with uh, relapsed or refractory indolent non-Hodgkin lymphoma received lenalidomide plus rituximab. 
And then they're essentially randomized to further lenalidomide rituximab or just uh, rituximab maintenance. And in an initial look at some of this data that was presented fairly recently, we can see that they subdivided, again, same caveats apply here, they subdivided patients based on double refractory status or early relapsing status. And at about one year, about 70% of patients, whether they were double refractory or early relapsing, uh, were free from progression. There is emerging data with obinutuzumab plus lenalidomide. I won't spend a lot of time on it other than to suggest that the combination appears safe and active, and so it's reasonable that it would be included in the um, uh, SWOG trial. So in conclusion, uh, early relapsing uh, follicular lymphoma, I think, is really a key unmet need in follicular lymphoma because these patients experience excess mortality unlike most patients with follicular lymphoma. The best strategy for these patients uh, remains unclear. Like novel anti-CD20 antibodies, PA3 kinase inhibitors, and immunomodulatory drugs have activity in the patient population. But the uh, optimal selection of uh, these drugs depends on patient selection, combinations, and sequencing. All of that, I think, it is still a little bit unclear. So I put here sort of my approach, and you'll see that I really don't have a, a great approach to this, unfortunately. For known or suspected transformation, if patients have received a prior anthracycline, suggests some other standard second-line chemotherapy regimen like RICE or DHEP. If they are candidates for stem cell transplant, I would consider that. If they're not candidates for a stem cell transplant, um, some people have suggested lenalidomide maintenance. I don't think that's uh, wrong. I'm not sure that uh, it's necessarily right either. I don't know. If they have not received a prior anthracycline, then R-CHOP would be a reasonable option. Or we're learning that some of these patients, uh, when they transform, have double hip lymphomas, and I think under those circumstances, we would treat them uh, with our EPOC. Historically, we've treated these people with autologous stem cell transplant, and that's probably still a reasonable thing to do. For patients that haven't experienced uh, transformation, I list all of the regimens that are in the SWOG trial. I think that they're all reasonable, but I think there are nuances that might drive uh, us to choose one or another. And then questions are, if somebody has a good response to a PA3 kinase inhibitor, for example, should that patient undergo an autologous stem cell transplant. Likewise, with uh, a uh, lenalidomide-based regimen, we don't know the answer to that. The SWAB trial will allow patients to undergo stem cell transplantation. So I'd certainly encourage you uh, to consider uh, participation in the SWAB trial because I think it is a, a fairly important uh, question, and it's only 45 patients per arm, so it's something that we should be able to answer. Thank you very much. Thank you.